Welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I am Sean Raming, a PhD student at the Croc Institute. This episode will contribute to the project on revitalizing Catholic engagement in nuclear disarmament. I am joined by Nicholas Roth, director of the Stimson Center's Nuclear Security Program and International Nuclear Security Forum. Prior to joining the Stimson Center, Roth was a senior research associate at the project on managing the atom at the Harvard Kennedy School. To begin with, could you please tell us how you became interested in nuclear issues and how you came to study and advocate for arms control and security? Sure, thank you for having me today. I first became interested in these issues as an undergraduate student. I had the opportunity to travel to Japan to study uh, the history of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And during that trip, two things really stood out to me. One were the personal stories of the horror that took place during those bombings and the trauma that, that those who survived had to deal with for the rest of their lives. And I was also shocked by how little I knew about the topic of nuclear weapons overall, but how little the American public knew. And I returned from that trip really committed to the idea that I wanted to help educate other Americans and help them better understand the things that I didn't understand. And just to give an example of how little Americans understood about nuclear weapons at that time, a couple of years after my trip uh, in 2007, there was a poll done asking how many nuclear weapons does the United States possess, a poll asking Americans. And the median response was 1,000. The actual number was uh, in the range of five to 6,000. It just gives us an idea of, of how much education there is needed on these topics. Great, well, we're happy to have you to help contribute to our mission in this project as well. And as you know, the project convenes students, faculty, and experts to discuss contemporary nuclear issues from a Catholic ethics perspective. Recently, your press releases have touched on ethical dimensions of nuclear security. Would you mind telling us a bit about how you see the interface of ethics in our state of nuclear affairs? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of ethics within the context of nuclear weapons policy has actually been uh, within the Catholic Church. Pope Francis's statement in 2017, really moving forward, Catholic belief in um, the morality of nuclear deterrence or possession of nuclear weapons. And this is a long evolution um, going back decades in um, how the Vatican has thought about the ethics of nuclear weapons. From a personal perspective, like I said, one of the things that initially interested me in nuclear weapons was the trauma that was inflicted upon people during the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I think it goes beyond that as well. The history of nuclear weapons has been one where there have been really dramatic health and environmental effects due to nuclear testing, due to nuclear production. And all of those really uh, should be incorporated into how people think about the morality of these weapons. And that's even before you even one even considers whether uh, weapons that are explicitly designed to destroy large areas and potentially kill uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are ethical. I tend to think that the threat of use of a weapon like that, whether it's by a state or a non-state actor, is not ethical. With the 20th anniversary of 
the prospect of nuclear terrorism has been our first topic this fall. Regarding your recent work on nuclear security, how would you characterize the current threat of and the preparedness for an act of non-state nuclear violence? It's a great question. And there's been enormous progress over the last 20 years in reducing the threat of nuclear terrorism, not only because terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda are not nearly as strong as they once were, but because there's been really a global effort over the last two decades to secure nuclear material and nuclear facilities uh, in, in countries around the world. Starting right after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, the United States significantly um, improved its own nuclear security, as did other countries. During the Obama administration, the United States convened famously a series of nuclear security summits focused on strengthening nuclear security around the world. We're now in a new era of nuclear security progress, one where the high level attention that existed in years past, either due to the shock of terrorist attacks or the high level political attention from previous presidents has waned to some extent. And there really isn't as much attention to these issues as there once was. And what's concerning about that is while the major groups like Al-Qaeda that I've talked about that are not what they once were, we can continue to see really concerning nuclear security incidents or security incidents in general that can have implications for nuclear facilities, like unmanned aerial vehicle attacks on critical infrastructure in countries, or examples of insider threats at nuclear facilities, or even people being arrested with the intent to commit acts of nuclear sabotage. So even though there's been a lot of progress, we still see the threat is constantly evolving and security needs to evolve with it. Great. Yeah. And if we can fold in maybe some of our modern day concerns with this next question, is the fact that we're still grappling with the COVID-19 global pandemic and um, experts warn us of more pandemics being likely in the future. And climate change looms large as a global challenge. You have recently co-authored several policy papers on these subjects. So can you describe some of the added risks to nuclear security that come with pandemics and the climate crisis? Sure, I'd be happy to. And one of the most interesting things about that research that we did was that it shows what the potential future uh, environment will be like for securing nuclear facilities. The best science indicates that the severity and frequency of storms, fires, uh, and other natural disasters is going to increase over the next few decades. That means it's going to be increasingly important over that time for nuclear facilities to adapt to these new conditions. We found a number of major challenges to maintaining strong security in a crisis, whether it be a major fire or a flood or an earthquake. The first and probably the most important is that organizations need to maintain focus on security even during crises. And that can be really challenging as physical systems are damaged as a result of whatever crisis is taking place, or there are lots of other distractions that might draw leadership away from maintaining security. This is why it's really important before crises take place for organizations to have a strong focus and a strong organizational culture that incorporates security 
not only at the highest levels, but down to uh, every person within that facility. We found a number of other sort of interesting aspects of maintaining security during a crisis. And this is not just a security challenge, but it's a challenge overall during a crisis is communication, making sure that guard forces have a strong situational awareness and are communicating with personnel and leadership within organizations. And then one other thing that's worth mentioning is access control can become a major security issue during a crisis. When you often have emergency workers coming in and out of facilities, um, you might lose It might be difficult to keep count um, of of who's going in inside and outside of the facilities. But in short, all of the normal operations that need to go on to have a secure nuclear facility become significantly more difficult as a result of a crisis. Yes, I find that research so valuable because in conversations around climate change and violence, I think the element of nuclear security is often, if not missing, doesn't occupy as much room as it should. Um, So I think those papers are incredibly important. Moving on to a slightly different nuclear topic now, with the Biden administration working on its nuclear posture review, an important topic in the disarmament community is removing presidential sole authority to order a nuclear attack. And this has been even more magnified by the recent claims made in Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, that General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, effectively interrupted the nuclear chain of command in the aftermath of January 6th. What do you make of presidential sole authority in our day and age? That's a great question. And this is something that I really hope that the Biden administration takes a hard look at as they're developing their own nuclear policy. I think we've seen throughout the Trump administration, particularly with these new revelations, how problematic it can be for one person to have authority over the decision to use nuclear weapons. But the Trump administration is not the first time that we've seen examples of this. During the Nixon administration, the Secretary of Defense um, provided similar orders to what occurred during the Trump administration. And so I I hope, well, one, I, I, I hope that it we shouldn't need historical examples for what otherwise would seem like common sense that one person should not have the ability to launch a nuclear weapon, potentially killing hundreds of thousands of people. I think the other important thing to emphasize is that there's been a lot of discussion uh, in light of these recent revelations, but during the Trump administration in general, whether anyone could stop the president if they gave such an order. And some of my colleagues who have done research on this, um, you know, I think make a very compelling case that even if the Secretary of Defense uh, or, or another leader tries to stand in the way of such an order, they don't necessarily have to be in the chain of command. And I think that raises some really problematic questions of whether anyone could stop the president if they gave such an order. There have been a lot of different versions of what should be done about this. One idea is that there should be a committee of possibly members of Congress who would have to weigh in on the ability to use nuclear weapons if the United States were using them first. There's also a piece of legislation that's been proposed several times by Senator Markey and Congressman Liu restricting the first use of nuclear weapons and um, I I really hope this is something that the Biden administration thinks about carefully. Who should be responsible for nuclear weapons for the order to use them and also under what circumstances we would use them? Okay. Well, thinking about historic precedent in uh, maybe a slightly more positive light, 
there have been other episodes that brought about many serious challenges to nuclear security. I was wondering if you could briefly describe the Nunn-Luger program and the cooperation between U.S. and Russian scientists to secure nuclear material after the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I would be happy to. And I think this is a really important case study, not just in terms of case study for strengthening nuclear nonproliferation and reducing uh, nuclear terrorism risks, but it's an important case study for how two countries who were uh, previously enemies can uh, cooperate in a way that had never really been done before. And in 1991, due to concerns about the economic and political shocks that were resulting from the collapse of the Soviet Union, Senators Nunn and Luger proposed this new initiative that was really an unprecedented cooperative effort between the United States and Russia to consolidate and eliminate nuclear materials and weapons, to enhance security at nuclear facilities, to strengthen relationships between the two countries within nuclear organizations, but at the personal level. And also that helped to allow the countries to better understand each other's approach to nuclear security and how they think about threats. And over the next two decades, two plus decades, there was this really significant cooperation between the two countries, in particular that, that strengthened after the September 11th terrorist attacks. We're now in an era due to the rising tension between the two countries where that cooperation really doesn't exist anymore. And as the two countries that have the most nuclear material and the most facilities of any countries on earth, the United States and Russia really do share a special responsibility for not just nuclear security, but for also cooperating with each other where they can to better understand each other's approaches to nuclear security, but to improve each other's approaches to nuclear security. And I hope, despite the tension between the two countries, that we're able to chew gum and walk at the same time and understand that while there are differences between the, the two countries, we can cooperate when it's in our best interests. And certainly making sure that terrorist hands never get near nuclear materials is certainly in both countries' interests. Indeed. And regarding the near future, then, you have recently called our nuclear modernization program wasteful and dangerous. I'm wondering what you see as some constructive alternatives to that reality. Sure. As a broader point, I think uh, if you look at the way the United States has spent money on nuclear issues over the last decade plus, what you see is an asymmetry in priorities. You see steady growth in nuclear weapons funding, while you see relatively flat funding for nonproliferation. And I think arguably the challenges that are addressed with nuclear deterrence aren't growing any faster than the challenges related to nonproliferation. So you certainly see a difference in priorities and how we're dealing with both. But this is going to be one of the things that the Biden administration looks at in its nuclear posture view. And one of the things that the Trump administration did, among other things, was paved the way for lower yield nuclear weapons, which some argue are more enticing to be used on the battlefield. I think that's a very dangerous slippery slope that we create by creating uh, by uh, developing more usable nuclear weapons. That's one area where I think the Biden administration could take a, a, another look at, at the Trump administration's approach. 
I think the other aspect to this is just the sheer cost of the modernization program in the trillions of dollars over the lifetime of the programs. And that is certainly money that could be used for some of the nonproliferation challenges we face. And I think an important question is everything that modernization program is paying for, are those things really necessary for U.S. national security? Or alternatively, I think like the the low-yield nuclear weapons, do they exacerbate dangers in some ways? Yes, indeed, especially when one considers that the so-called low-yield nuclear weapons are similar to the yields of the bombs that dropped on Japan, which you referenced in the beginning of our conversation. But following your comments on the uh, future of nuclear weapons and nuclear insecurity, I was wondering if some of your suggestions are places where ethics and security might meet again. Yeah, that's a great question. And just to touch upon your last comment, I think it's something that's really important for people to understand that even a small nuclear weapon and the ones that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki are considered small by modern standards, really are dramatically larger than any conventional weapon that exists in in modern day arsenals. It's really important to understand that the level of devastation that these weapons can create is, is really like nothing else that exists in, in modern armies. What we find is that the health and environmental impacts related to nuclear weapons are the things that really cause political change and, and encourage nuclear risk re- reduction. The partial test ban treaty of the 1950s was the result of uh, health impacts of nuclear testing, of atmospheric nuclear testing. The freeze movement in the 1980s was the result of concerns having to do with nuclear winter and uh, health and environmental effects of nuclear war. In the early 1990s, and this is one of the uh, uh, case studies that I find fascinating, the U.S. decision to stop producing uh, plutonium pits, which are the cores for nuclear weapons, was not a strategic decision. It was about the health and environmental impacts of the facility in Colorado that was producing these plutonium pits. Uh, The FBI raided the facility and shut it down. So what you find over and over again is that it's these personal connections, the health humanitarian effects of nuclear weapons that really drive nuclear risk reduction. And I think the more we can connect what can normally be an abstract conversation about strategy uh, and deterrence and budgets and arcane concepts of of command and control, the more we can actually connect that to actual uh, human impacts on the ground, the more this issue becomes tangible and the more you can have a real policy conversation about it. Speaking of policy conversations, we're looking at the renewal discussions for the non-proliferation treaty early next year. Do you find that a potential place where some of these ethical and humanitarian concerns could be melded with more hardcore security-oriented ideas in controlling the spread of nuclear weapons? I think uh, the humanitarian aspects of nuclear weapons always need to be part of the conversation. And if we're not, if that's not part of the conversation, then we're having the wrong conversation. One thing that I would say about the upcoming NPT review is that nuclear security, protecting nuclear facilities from theft or sabotage, only a relatively small amount of nuclear material about the size of a grapefruit is required for a non-state actor to um, actually build a nuclear weapon. Talking about how that issue connects to broader 
nuclear nonproliferation and nuclear policy issues, I think is a critical thing that should happen at the review. It's happened at reviews of the past, but not in quite some time. And talking about how nuclear security is an essential component of all three pillars of the nonproliferation regime, the right to nuclear power, the uh, prevention of the spread of nuclear um, weapons, whether it's to state or non-state actors, and to Article 6 commitments to nuclear disarmament, All of these are grounded in a practical way to making sure that nuclear sabotage and theft are prevented. Okay. Well, one last question, Nick, if I may. What are some things that our group of young people and educators can do to advance the cause of nuclear awareness and cooperation? So it's a a really good question. And I think there are a couple of different things. And I think those of us who work on nuclear policy issues have, have really had a challenge since the end of the Cold War in trying to make this issue salient to everyone, not, and, in, and especially young people. And so to some extent, I think the responsibility is on people like me to help young people better uh, connect with issues like this. But I think there, there are a couple of different things. One is there needs to be a better understanding. Um, and again, this is this is the responsibility of those who already work on these issues to connect nuclear weapons issues with other issues that are relevant. Um, Like I said, the health and environmental effects, but also the impact of diversity, equity, and inclusion or lack thereof on the policymaking process and finding ways to, um, to think about nuclear weapons issues within that broader context, I think is really important. I think the other way, I mean, the, the, the simplest thing is Call your member of Congress. It sounds so simple. Call your senator. Sounds so simple. But I think one of the things that I've learned in doing this work is the power that constituents can have in influencing policy. When I started working on these issues, um, I I did exactly that. I, I called a member of Congress. I talked about what I thought policy priorities should be. And I was, you know, I'm a, a nobody. I'm just somebody who called a member of Congress and said, I think this is the way things should be. But there's power in being a constituent in our political system in the United States. And members of Congress and staffers do listen when you call them. And I think finding ways of better connecting young people to that political process is really important. Well, great. Thank you so much, Nick Roth, for being on the Crockcast and for sharing your experience and insights. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Crockcast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. This episode was co-sponsored by the Catholic Peacebuilding Network and is part of their efforts as part of the Project on Revitalizing Catholic Engagement on Nuclear Disarmament. You can learn more about this work at cpn.nd.edu slash nuclear disarmament. You can find all episodes of the Crockcast on Apple, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at crock.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Crock Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.